And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Dr. Todd Lafferty. Todd is a veteran missionary who currently serves as the executive vice president at the International Mission Board. I've known Todd for more than a decade. He's a longtime friend, and I'm really excited for this conversation today. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to this conversation today. This is a conversation near and dear to my heart. Awesome. Well, you know, when we when we read the Bible, we see these, these concepts and these words that pop up really from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. So it's really all over Scripture. We see these words, these describers of peoples and nations. We know in, in Revelation, we, we pick up on every tribe, tongue, language, nation, these kinds of things. And in mission discussions today, we hear a lot about peoples. We hear a lot about unreached peoples. We hear about reached peoples. And so the question I wanted to ask you, the topic of conversation I wanted to have with you is how does the the IMB, as a large mission-sending organization, how does the IMB think through the, the categories of reached and unreached and all of these things connected to this conversation? So maybe a, a kind of a good question to kind of get us going would be when we think about missions in 2022, why do the conversations often start with the concept of peoples? Well, let me give you a little bit of a personal journey in regard to peoples. Became a believer playing football in college out in Yuma, Arizona, and uh, eventually transferred to the University of New Mexico. Got involved with Hoffmantown Baptist Church, where I had a South African pastor who preached missions a lot, but was also involved with Campus Crusade. And at our crusade meetings, every week, we would hear about these hidden peoples. Now, I'd never heard this concept before. And so as I began to kind of figure out what are hidden peoples, where do they come from, I, I was told about the Lausanne meeting in 74, when Ralph Winter kind of uh, brought this whole idea of hidden peoples to the forefront. Whereas we thought we had reached a country, a geopolitical nation, if we had personnel on the ground. And so we had maps at the Foreign Mission Board at the time that would color in the entire country as kind of reached because we had people there. And so the evangelistic aspect of trying to reach that country had been accomplished. And people were talking about, do we really need to send missionaries anymore? Because all the countries have been reached with the gospel. And then he kind of blew that up at that Luzon meeting when Billy Graham invited those 2,300 leaders from around the world, and he started talking about hidden peoples. And the hidden peoples added up to about 2.5 billion people at the time. Now, that just kind of rocked the missions world, and people began to think differently about the nation's 
and reaching the people groups around the world. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the concept of peoples. We were praying for all kinds of people groups on those uh, weekday evenings that I'd never heard of. And so that kind of came to the forefront. And in 1983, when I went to Scotland as a journeyman, my first assignment with the, the IM, or Foreign Mission Board at the time, we were still not really there with people groups. We were still thinking countries. We still had those maps where we would color in a whole country green if there were any personnel there. And so, okay, we've got people there. Now let's go to another country. And so we uh, we slowly began to, the hidden people's concept began to flow into the IMB in the late 80s, began to think about people groups more. And when I was at Southwestern Seminary, we were talking about people groups at that time in the late 80s. And then in the 90s, the maps began to change. And uh, we realized that, hey, uh, just because a country won't allow us in on a missionary visa doesn't mean that it should preclude us from sharing the gospel in that country. And so that's when we began all kinds of creative ways to begin to enter these countries because there were hidden peoples. There were peoples behind the barriers, the boundaries of governments and religions that didn't want the gospel to come in. But uh, like the early disciples, we said, well, is it better to obey man or, or God? And so we started to find ways to get into those countries because there were peoples there that had never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. So those, those maps changed. We began talking people group language. And so that's how it kind of flowed into in my life personally, and then also into the life of an organization. Yeah, that's a helpful background, you know, there. I think you exactly are right that Lausanne 74 was kind of a big game changer in a lot of ways. And it took, it seems like maybe a couple of decades for that kind of to trickle down eventually then to impact a lot of the sending organizations today. You know, now we're what, 50, 60 years after that conference. And it seems like almost every organization is now thinking in the terms of, or categories of reached and unreached and unreached peoples, those kinds of things. So just shows you the power of, of kind of how that paradigm changed there in the mid late seventies and then kind of onward from there. I want to switch a little bit and maybe move to the Bible as the Bible talks about uh, peoples and would love to hear your thoughts on how do we biblically define the concept of peoples from a biblical yeah. perspective? Well, you know, coming in with Ralph Winter at about the same time earlier, actually, was Donald McGavern. And he was in uh, India studying the peoples there, the movements that were happening in central India, especially. And he brought some concepts back to the states that uh, kind of created a little bit of an uproar when he started talking about homogeneous units. And then that was sometimes equated with being racist. And, but I think what he, was what he had discovered in India was the principle that the gospel flows most easily among a people or peoples that are related to one another, that have a natural affinity for one another, that have oikos, that have households related to one another. And so as we think about this biblically, if we think about it in terms of human groupings, McGavern's homogeneous unit principle was really an idea that's based on biblical truth because all through scripture, we see human groupings in scripture, even beginning in Genesis, where we have the biggest grouping, all of mankind, the, the term Adam, 
And then the term goy and am are used for nations. And so there's there's kind of a big groupings of people, and then it begins to filter down and gets smaller and smaller. And and so we we have eretz also is is another word for used for humankind. And so there's a lot of different terms that are used in even the Old Testament to begin to describe these people. We know that after the flood, there's that table of nations in Genesis 10. Those families coming out of Noah are described as people having lands and languages and peoples and kind of boundaries where they lived. And then we see in Genesis 11 that God came down and he confused the languages because they were speaking one language. And and his goal was to spread out and populate the whole earth and be fruitful and multiply. And so then we begin to see those languages being multiplied out and peoples being multiplied out. And Daniel's very interesting. In Daniel, there's seven different expressions of this particular phrase, peoples, nations, and men of every language. In seven different verses in Daniel, those specific terms are used. And that really signifies different unique people groups. And we might even come up with the term ethno-linguistic as we look at those peoples that are even named in the book of Daniel. As, uh, for example, Daniel 3.7, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image. Here's peoples and nations and, and languages that are uniquely set out as different from one another in those seven passages. And then, we, of course, we come to Genesis 12, that great promise to Abram that he would be the father of, of many nations. And in the Septuagint, that word is ethnos. So we, we begin to see the use of, it's just actually a smaller grouping where he will be a blessing to many families and families of families. And then that blessing is passed on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they would be the ones that were continue to pass that on to the various nations. And so Genesis 12 is kind of the beginning of that mission to reach all nations, hit a few more places along the way, but Revelation 7, 9 is kind of the bookend passage to Genesis 12. Here we see Abram being a blessing to the nations. And then we have John's Revelation 7, 9, where every nation, tribe, people, and language will be gathered before that throne. And and those are unique ethnic groupings of people. I don't think we can deny that. And, uh, you know, there is the concept where that word ethnos is, is ethne is used to describe Gentiles. But I think it's more than that. If we go there, then we just have a big conglomerate of lost people. And again, we lose the concept of reaching peoples who have no access to the gospel. If we go to the place where ethne is just Gentiles, then really anything is missions because I'm just reaching lost people, non-believers. I mean, if you've been overseas, you know this. If you ask a Hindu, if they would marry their daughter off to such and such boy from another caste, you know immediately that there are differences in peoples because they wouldn't do it. In fact, they wouldn't even eat the food made in the kitchen of that other person because they know there's such a difference in the way they live their lives and what they believe and where they are on the caste order. And so there's definitely a difference of peoples. When you're overseas, you you recognize that. Even in a what seems to be 
a great multitude of one people, the Muslim people. There are so many varieties of, of Muslim peoples, not only languages, but the way they think about their own religion. When we lived in Sunnis and Shias were at war with one another because they believed differently. And so they knew that there was a difference even among themselves. And so we see these differences spread out all over the world. And coming back into the New Testament, then we, we begin to see, you know, beginning with the cosmos and, you know, and John and the logos and John 129 says the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's that big picture, cosmos word. Luke 2.1 says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And that's oikomene. So those are the kind of the big picture people of the world. But then it begins to get into smaller groupings. And Matthew 24.14 says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, that's the oikomene, as a testimony to all nations, to the ethnos, and then the end will come. And so there's this beginning to filter down into smaller and smaller groups, and then you begin to look at the different words used in Revelation, nation, ethnos, tribes, fule, and language, uh, glossa, and you, you look at uh, laos, peoples. And so there are different groupings or different words to describe different peoples. And so you see it all the way from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, because all through the scripture, we see lots of different groupings of people that are unique from one another. They're different from one another. And we saw the importance of learning the languages of the peoples as uh, Paul and Barnabas learned when uh, they were trying to make them to be gods. And they said, no, no, no. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Acts 14 was, yeah, maybe yeah. Not, the, not the most successful uh, initial missionary endeavor there because of the language barrier that was there. That's this right. That's true. That's helpful, Todd, you know, walking back through, so talking through some of the, just the origins of, you know, people groups and hidden peoples that you talked about kind of back with Lausanne 74 and then eventually kind of making that, making its way up to now where we talk about unreached people and then even talking through some of the biblical categories of how we think about these things and some of the key texts of Genesis 10, Genesis 12, the book of Daniel, moving your way into the New Testament, looking at some of the key texts in Matthew, whether it be Matthew 24 or even Matthew 28, Great Commission, all the way down to Revelation. I think we see this concept and this idea of peoples, nations, and we know that God has his, his sights set on those groups and his desire to rescue and redeem those people from their sins and draw them to himself. The, the next question I have kind of coming out of that is from the perspective of the IMB, then a, a large mission sending organization that has a limited number of dollars and resources and people every year have, having to make difficult yeah, decisions yeah. in terms of deploying personnel to this place or that place. How does the IMB classify a group as reached or Unreached. We kind of follow the general missions community in that right now. And, uh, you know, it hasn't always been that way. It really got solidified in at the 82,000 movement beginning. Uh, up until then, some people were, were saying unreached is as many as 20% in a people group. But as different missiologists got together and they began to hammer this out, they went down to the 2% ratio. 
that's a pretty small percentage. But when you have a million people in a people group, that's also a lot of people that can help to facilitate the gospel flowing among a people group. And so you saw the change back in 1998 when the IMB started what was called New Directions, where we began to exit some fields, South America, Africa, uh, some places in Asia, and began to move toward more unreached peoples, those who are less than 2%, or even there's another category we talk about, unengaged unreached peoples. So unengaged is a group that has no believers and no church planning strategy being implemented among them, especially in the last two years. And so uh, we look at those unreached people lists. We look at the people group lists, you know, over 7,000 unreached peoples still today. You can go to peoplegroups.org and see the latest statistics there. Over 3,000 UUPGs, unengaged, unreached people groups that still are waiting for someone to share the gospel with them for the very first time. You know, so even in a big city, you talk to someone on the street and said, have you heard of Jesus? And he said, no, where does he live? You know, he had no concept of who Jesus is, even in a place that has a lot of churches. But the lostness is just overwhelming in a city of 25 million people. And so just a great need to continue to move our focus toward those unreached peoples and unengaged unreached peoples. Last year, 88% of our personnel, our teams, were focused on reaching unreached peoples. One group saw their first believer after eight years of working among a people group. That's hard work. That's learning the language and spending a lot of time talking to people and sharing the good news of Christ. And then you see that first believer, that first breakthrough. And so many of our personnel talk about this kind of seven-year mark. And it's interesting, that's kind of what Carrie and Judson's mark was when they got their first believers. And it, it, we've seen that on the field too, where there's breakthroughs happening at about the seven, eight-year mark. Why is that? Because people have paid the price for learning the language. And they've gone through hard times, I guarantee it. If they're trying to reach unreached peoples, the enemy is against them. There's spiritual battles happening all around them. There are attacks against their children. There's health issues. It's hard work. And to get those breakthroughs means that you stay the course because God's called you to be there. He's given you a heart and a passion to reach those lost people and to give them at least an opportunity to hear the gospel one time. And so as a mission agency, we're focused on those lists. We look at those people group lists. Every affinity, we have eight different groupings of workers around the world that have the responsibility for all the people groups in their particular area, their region, their affinity, we call them. And so we want them to lead the charge in reaching those peoples and developing the strategies to reach those peoples. Now, it doesn't mean we exit everywhere. I don't know if you want to get into that conversation yet, but we can do that when you're ready. But uh, as a mission agency, we don't want people not to have an opportunity to hear the gospel at least one time in their lifetime. And so that's a that's a deep passion from our leadership team, from Dr. Chitwood and our core team uh, and others that are, are leading on the field. 
Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. I do want to get into the, the exit question here in a little bit. Before we, we jump into that, this is not a trap question. This is something I'm generally curious about as well. And you gave some good background on kind of this is where the general missions community kind of has been for the last 20 plus years or so. But in your opinion, how helpful do you think that the 2% designation is as it relates to kind of the reached, unreached conversation? Is that for you kind of a very strong this is really, really helpful, or is it, yeah, you know, we have to have some kind of number to kind of put down that kind of helps provide us a little bit of a guide or some direction. So from your perspective, how helpful is that 2% designation? Well, I think that question does take us into the next question, because if there is local ownership of the core missionary task, now core missionary task, we would say is entry, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, leadership training, and exit to partnership. If you have a strong, if you have strong churches, you have believers passionate about reaching their people, they even have a vision to reach the next people over, and they have taken local ownership of the core missionary task, then they may not even be 2%, but if they've reached that 2% threshold and they're taking ownership, say, we have this, we're even going to another people group, then we might leave some people behind for leadership training purposes but we would move our church planter type of focus to probably another people group nearby, but we want to take them with us in that task. I think one of the things that we missed out early on as an organization, it may be because travel was so difficult and peoples were, you know, just being reached for the first time, but having a great commission focus among every people group that becomes a reached people group, that they own the Great Commission too. It's not just the IMB. It's not just any other mission agency. The local people have to own the Great Commission for the world to be reached. And so giving them that vision to reach the nations is so critical. And then to see that they have a good handle on what we consider the basics, really, the core missionary task, really just the basics of doing missions but also bringing them along with us so they learn, their missionaries learn how to do cross-cultural work. So that, that would be my thought is, you know, you don't want to exit until they're ready. And one of those areas that, that on the core missionary task, leadership training is one of those areas that's very important. Do they have leaders that are well-trained and can they begin even to work on their own theology for the worldviews that they're dealing with, 
in South Asia, they have a process of taking groups through and writing their own Baptist faith and message and dealing with having the same verses that we have in ours, but having them work through those verses in light of the worldview that they face, you know, and thinking things like we wouldn't think about, are there spirits and animals, you know, and how do we deal with that? Because the, the worldview of the people we're living around has spirits in all kinds of things, rocks and trees and everything. So you have to help them begin to write their own theology to meet the worldview that they're facing. And so I think there will be times where we kind of leave people there to continue to train and equip so that they even come to the point of being able to write their own uh, theology, to think through their own theology and and doctrine to uh, reach the worldviews that they're faced with, those types of issues, the loss that they face. That's really encouraging. I appreciate you sharing about those global partnerships. You know, it's clear, even though I think sometimes people are still living under maybe old paradigms and thoughts that it seems like the, the days of missions being done from, from the West to the rest of the world, those days are over. And it's encouraging to hear about how God's raising up Brazilian Baptist and Cuban Baptist and Ukrainian Baptist, and you can go down the line and and hear how they're, you know, they're having a passion. They're taking ownership for the Great Commission and then figuring out how do we how do we join our arms together and lock arms together, knowing that that, that probably is is maybe easier said than done, but knowing that that's worthy and good work for us to be engaged in. So I'm, I'm encouraged to hear Absolutely. about that. I look forward to seeing how the Lord continues to bless that in the years to come. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I want to switch to kind of another part of the question, uh, just part of the discussion, the topic we're talking about. You know, it's not uncommon, you know, you mentioned back when you were in college that it was, you know, you were starting to hear some whispers and things of, well, you know, look at this world map and it looks like we have kind of most of the work done. We have believers in this country and in that country. And you would look at a map and people were saying, hey, I think maybe by the year 2000 or something like that, we might be getting pretty close to finishing the Great Commission or whatever that means. And so today, you know, it's not uncommon to hear slogans like finish the task or notions that maybe we're getting close. In many ways, I want to celebrate and and applaud those efforts. But I want to ask your thoughts, you know, what are your thoughts on that idea or that notion that that we're getting close to getting the gospel to all the people who need to hear it? I mean, earlier you mentioned there are still around 3,000, I think you said, UU. PG, so unreached, unengaged people groups. So maybe talk us through how you kind of think through some people saying, yeah, it looks like we might be getting close, but then there's other lists that say, ah, it looks like there's about 3,000 groups that still have no witness at all. How, how do we think through that? We look at what is actually happening among that people group. Some might say if there's a believer there, then, hey, that that's a reached group. We believe that there needs to be a church planting strategy in place. When the church is planted among a people, it has a better chance of sustaining a continued gospel witness among those people. If there's no churches, then that people group's going to be unengaged as soon as that person dies. But we want a reproducing church that are making disciples and planting other churches among that people group until we would... Once we get that first church going, it's healthy, then we would probably put them on the unreached people group list. So there are those people groups that really, as far as we know, there are no believers and there's definitely no church planning strategy among that people group. 
Otherwise, we would mark them unreached. The next kind of date that's bubbling up now is 2033, 2,000 years after Jesus's, you know, resurrection. And there's a lot of momentum there. I don't, we love dates for some reason and putting strategies around dates. And a lot of organizations are talking about 2033 now. You know, I think the work will be done when Jesus comes back. <laughs> Until that time, there really, there's no need to speculate. We have work to do. There's a lot of lost people. Even if everyone's reached, Jesus is not ready to come back until everyone is one who he wants to have one. And so the work continues until we hear that trumpet in the east and we're called up to join him or we are raised up to join him. So I don't get too uh, hung up with, are we getting close or not? You know, when you live in a place like South Asia and you see millions and millions and millions of lost people, Man, you hope the work's not done yet because you want them to have an opportunity to hear. You want them an opportunity to hear the gospel. And there, there needs to be an urgency about getting the gospel to the nations. It doesn't mean we don't have an urgency. We need to have an urgency, not for the sake of Jesus coming back, for the sake of them having an opportunity to hear the gospel, for them to come to Christ and for them to know the joy of salvation and the opportunity to walk in fellowship with other believers and to know that that uh, sweet fellowship that comes from from being a part of a family of Christ. That's what I would say is, hey, brother, sister, let's keep going until Jesus comes back or until our life is finished and we've given it our all. Let's run through our tape as hard as we can. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful perspective. You know, it reminds me of, of a George Eldon Ladd quote where he basically says, you know, looking at Matthew 24 and other things, he's like, I don't exactly know even though he's a New Testament, a brilliant New Testament scholar, I don't exactly know what all these things mean in Matthew 24, 14. What I do know is that our Savior has not yet returned, and yet he's given us a commission. And so as far as I can tell, we need to continue the work until he returns. And so I think that's the, the right posture, perspective, and approach. And so that's, that's encouraging to hear. All right, as we wrap up our time, I want to kind of go through some, some lightning round questions with you, just kind of throw some questions out and let you kind of give some quick responses the first question is for groups that are considered unreached in the world today, what would you say is their greatest need? They need immediately someone praying for them. We have on peoplegroups.org now, a church can go there and do some prayer training on praying for unreached peoples. Uh, Gordon Fort has done some videos for us. They're up there, four different videos. And then you can go and choose a people group to pray for. Your church can adopt a people group that is unengaged. And if nothing else, they need someone beginning to pray for them. We have so many examples of churches that began praying that didn't know for five years or more that anything had happened. And one particular church, First Baptist Centerton, prayed for a people group for five years. They went to, for five years. They couldn't find their people group. They finally connected with one of our personnel on the field, said, I'll look for your people group. The next time he was out and had some church planners gathered together, he said, are there any people from the here? And they said, yes. A young man raised his hand on the front row and said, brother, when did you come to faith in Christ? He said, well, just a few years ago. And there were 10 others that had all come to faith within the previous five years. When that church started praying, God started moving in the lives of the people. And now there's, there are churches there. There's a training center to reach other unreached peoples in the area. So prayer is so strategic. 
I tell my students at Southern that, that one of the most neglected, but probably most powerful means of missions is prayer. We don't talk a lot about it. It doesn't get a lot of, you know, highlight and those kinds of things, but, but God uses it in a powerful way. So that's good. For groups that are considered unreached, their greatest need is somebody praying for them today. All right, next question. For groups that are considered reached, what is their greatest need? To have a vision for the nations. They're not reached just to stay there. They're reached to be a part of the Great Commission. Everyone has a part to play in fulfilling the Great Commission. And so that reach group needs to have a vision for the nations, just like you and I do and your students and our missionaries. We have a vision for the nations. Those reached groups, peoples, churches need to have a vision for the nations and join us. The rest of the rest. Fill in the blank to this question. The biggest challenge in getting the gospel to unreached people today is blank. Getting access. There are so many countries now that it is becoming more and more difficult to live there. There's so much facial recognition, AI being used to track people. So having a legitimate reason to be in a country is going to be extremely important in the years to come to be engaging in the gospel in many places. You know, I said earlier that, you know, do we obey man or God? We obey God, but we have to find ways to get past man sometimes, and those ways are getting more difficult. And so we've got to find ways to begin to do that so that we can have access to people groups that are still hidden still behind the veil, behind the barriers that are put up before us uh, to get the gospel to them. Last question. If you could say one thing to pastors and church leaders trying to lead their churches to engage unreached peoples, hmm. what would you say? Well, I often talk to pastors who come, and this is something I saw of churches that were being effective in their work overseas. I said, you need five C's. First, you need a cheerleader. The senior pastor has to be the cheerleader for missions or it doesn't happen. If he's not passionate preaching missions, just like my South African pastor did at Hoffmantown Baptist Church in Albuquerque, it's not going to happen. Secondly, you need a champion. There needs to be someone in the church who takes ownership of that work, whether it's by country or by continent, whatever it is, there needs to be a champion who takes ownership and learns how to get a group from one side of the world to the other and knows how to, to uh, make those things happen. Next, you need a connector. What's the best way to get there? What Who do we want to go work with? So either someone you know on the field or someone here in our Richmond office, we have many guys in the mobilization team that can help connect churches to the field. Or if you have people on the field, that's your first natural connection what are you doing with them to help engage in their strategies on the field? And so the connector is important. The coach, once you're on the field, you need a coach to help you become effective on the field. Okay, how do you reach Muslims? How do you reach Buddhists? How do you reach Hindus? What's the language you use? How do you approach them with the gospel? What are the things that they need to know about the gospel, especially with their worldview? With the Muslim, they need to know Jesus died and he rose again because they don't think he died on the cross. And so we need a coach to help people understand that because of the questions they'll get and how to answer those questions that come from Muslims. And then uh, you need a church that's on board. 
the church body needs to be together with the heart to reach their local and their nation and the world and have that Acts 1-8 vision from beginning at home, going all the way to the ends of the earth. So those five C's, I think, are especially critical for any church leader to understand and begin to put into to play if they want to have an effective work, both home and around the world. Thank you so much for your time today. It's It's been a blessing to have the conversation, to get to hear, you know, even something as practical as the five C's and then something as deep all the way back as how do we define people's. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Paul. It's been great to be with you. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.